0: Alright, so again, talking tonight about the reliability of God's Word and how we, how we respond to people who doubt that reliability. Uh, so I'm going to start with a story. The late Chuck Colson, uh, in one of his books, and I can't remember which one, uh, talked about, told the story of during the, the evacuation of Dunkirk. So for those of you who don't know. Uh, In the early days of World War II, before the United States got involved, there was a moment when the British Army, which was really the only one still standing up to Hitler, was between a rock and a hard place. They were stretched out on a beach near Dunkirk, France, and the Nazi Army was bearing down on them, and they were either going to get annihilated or captured, and that would be the end, the end of any resistance to the advance of Adolf Hitler. He had a non-aggression pact with the Soviets, so I mean, he would have free reign. Um, and according to Colson, that, during that moment, a British officer sent a message to the high command in, in London, and that message was then transmitted to the British people. And the message said, here's our situation, we ask that you come help us, and then it said, but if not. Just those three words, but if not. That was a reference to Daniel three eighteen. Daniel three eighteen, you probably know, is part of the story of, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three uh, Jewish boys standing before King Nebuchadnezzar, who has just told them, "If you don't bow down to my idol, I will throw you into this blazing furnace, and you will die painfully." And they say, "Well, we know that our God can protect you. Our God is stronger than you, and if He wants to, He can rescue us from your hand." And then they say this, and this is in the King James Version, which is what he was quoting. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it just shows what I think true faith is. True faith isn't isn't telling God, okay, you'll do this for me. True faith is saying, God, here's what I want you to do, but even if you don't, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to do what you say. That's what they were saying to King Nebuchadnezzar. And the, the British officer was saying to his people, listen, we sure hope you can find a way, some way against all odds, to rescue us from this beach. But if you don't, we'll just we'll die for our country. That's what we signed on to do. But if not, we're going to be faithful. We're not going to give in. Uh, and the people were so inspired by that, that people got into their fishing boats and their tugboats and their sailboats, and by the hundreds, they found their way across the English Channel and, and took British soldiers back across uh, four or five, a dozen at a time, and managed to rescue most of the British Army, and therefore, in essence, saved Western civilization. Now, it's a great story. I love all the stories about that whole thing. The movie they made about it about 10 years ago is, is pretty good, uh, but it makes me think, and this was Chuck Colson's point in his book, would American Christians, or would Americans, that is, period, recognize a scripture reference like that today? He was writing in the 1990s, and the answer then was no. And I know they wouldn't today. In fact, I don't think many Christians would recognize a scripture reference that obscure today. Uh, but even more importantly, you know, we, we can recognize that's how much, over the course of 80 years, scripture... Uh, Literacy has gone down in Western culture. Whereas, you know, 80 years ago, you could quote three verses, three words of a verse of scripture and everybody knows what you're talking about. Today, you could quote a whole chapter of the Bible and a lot of folks would go, what is he talking about? But what's more important than the loss of scriptural literacy is the loss of respect for the authority of scripture. And what that comes down to for us is this. Many of us, if you're my age or older, uh, maybe even a little younger than me, and you were raised in an evangelical church, you were taught to share your faith by quoting Scripture. And that made sense, because what difference does it make if you tell people what Jesus means to you? What really matters is if you say, here's what the Bible says, because that's our authority right? So, the, the theory was you go up to someone who's not a Christian and you say, Do you want to know what the Bible actually says about how to get to heaven? And then you'd quote them the Roman road, for instance. That's the method I learned. And you, you look at them and they're going to say, Oh, well, that's not what I thought. I thought you just had to be perfect and God took the good people to heaven and the bad people missed out. It's good to know there's, there's a way for even a sinner like me to be saved. That's the way it's supposed to work, and that's the way it did work and has worked for untold numbers of people who come to Christ. But these days it happens less and less because your average non-Christian today is much less likely to uh, give any authority to Scripture in their life. Uh, At best, the more polite unbeliever will say something like, well, that's very interesting, thanks for sharing that with me. You know, Sort of like the way you would say that to a Hindu who says, let me tell you about my faith. Others will say, yeah, that's fine for you, but it means nothing to me because I don't believe in Scripture. And some, this is the part that some of us are having a hard time wrapping our minds around. Some unbelievers will actually be disturbed that you to find out that you take the Bible seriously. I knew you were a Christian. I knew you went to church. I just thought you went and you know sang some songs and maybe talked about how to be a good person. I didn't know you actually take that book, the Bible, literally. And they will actually think less of you as a result. They will actually think, well, I thought you were an intelligent person. Turns out you're not. I thought you were trustworthy. Turns out you're not. If you believe that stuff, I don't know that I can look at you the same way anymore. And that goes for people who have no Christian background, of course, and that's an increasing number in our culture, but also for some people and and perhaps some of your own family members or friends who grew up in church and once upon a time went to Sunday school, learned the scriptures, but they've turned completely around now where the Bible is untrustworthy at best. So how do we handle that? Uh, So let's talk about several questions you might hear. And the first of course is, do you take the Bible literally? Now my gut response to that is always gonna be yes, but I want to suggest a different answer, and this comes from another pastor, and I think it makes a lot of sense in this context. Do you take the Bible literally? And his answer is, not all of it. And then he waits for a moment. He watches the look of relief on their face as if they're thinking, oh good, you're not one of those nut jobs. And then he says, but I believe every word of it is true. I don't believe it. I don't take it literally, not all of it, but I believe every word of it is true. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. We don't believe every word of the Bible is meant to be taken literally. And and for instance, I'll give you several examples. There are metaphors in the Bible. When someone in our culture says it's raining cats and dogs out there, nobody runs outside hoping to adopt the new Fido or Felix, right? We know that's a metaphor. When Jesus says in the Gospel of John, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be have any part of me. He is not advocating cannibalism or vampirism, right? He is using a metaphor to say, I am the way. I am the only way to salvation. You have to partake of me. You, I, I, am, I am the bread of life. I mean, it's part of that whole, uh, that whole line of, of Christ identifying himself. And there are other examples like that in Scripture. Here's another one. Uh, hyperbole. Hyperbole is when we uh, make an exaggerated statement for effect. So, for instance, if you come back from HEB and you say to your spouse, man, everybody and their dog were at the grocery store today. Your spouse does not think that the whole planet Earth and every dog on planet Earth was in HEB. That would be messy, right? She knows what you're saying is, I saw a lot of people I knew there. So when the gospel says that as John the Baptist was preaching out in the Judean desert and all of Judea was going out to be baptized by him, it does not mean that every single person who lived in the region of Judea got themselves baptized by John. That would have taken forever. It's saying in the same way that you would say in the grocery store. Everybody and his dog was there. I mean, you looked and you thought, you're here too? That's, it's hyperbole for impact. Uh, here's another uh, kind of, here's another reason we don't take all Scripture literally. There are different genres in the Bible. Even a lot of Christians don't get this. The Bible is not one book written by one person in one style. It is it is 66 books written by dozens of different authors in three different languages and all kinds of different styles, and the different styles matter. We know this. The way you read a, a story on the Internet about the news is different than the way you read a novel. You you take things differently. You you accept things differently. Uh, And the same way, when you're reading the book of Revelation, and John describes Jesus and says, a lamb who was slain, you do not believe in your mind, oh, well, John watched Jesus transform from a human being into a baby sheep with its throat cut. That's not what John means for us to see, because Revelation is written in an apocalyptic style. Apocalypse uh, means it's, I mean, an easy kind of oversimplified way of saying it is it's, it's written in code. It's written in such a way that certain images are supposed to convey certain truths, but we don't take them literally. You know, later on in the book of Revelation, when it says Jesus comes back to earth, he'll have a sword protruding from his mouth. I don't think we can... That's what we expect to see when Jesus returns to the world. So on the other hand, when you read the Gospels, those are clearly meant to be taken as real history. So we believe Jesus really did make the storm still. He really did walk on the water. He really did feed uh, 5,000 people with uh, seven loaves and and two fish, uh, or five loaves and two fish. He he really did raise the dead. Um, Here's something else. There are parts of the Bible that we know don't apply to us because we interpret Scripture by Scripture. Now, here's what I mean. In the book of Deuteronomy, you may not be aware of this, but some of you are, especially if you've raised teenagers, Uh, the book of Deuteronomy teaches that a rebellious son should be stoned to death. I've raised two teenagers. They were, at times, rebellious. We never once brought them to the town fathers and said, "'Kill our child.'" right? Take them out to the gates of the city, pick up rocks, and stone them to death. Why? Are we being disobedient to the Word of God? I don't believe so, because when you read the work of the, the words of Jesus and the words of Paul, both of them tell us that the law of Moses does not bind us any longer. The law of Moses was intended for a certain period of time and for a certain purpose, and we're no longer bound by that law. There's a whole host of reasons a whole host of things that we don't follow in that law because it no longer binds us. So what I would say is the Bible has an internal logic an internal logic that makes sense and you must read it responsibly. You must read it according to its own rules. Uh, 2 Timothy 2:15. Puts it this way, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There is a wrong way to handle the Bible. And some of that wrong way is when you take parts of the Bible literally that aren't meant to be taken literally. Uh, And so uh, what I would say to that person who says, do you take the Bible literally? I, I think that's a good answer. Not all of it, but I believe every word is true. Some parts of it are not meant to be taken literally, and I understand that now to you i say this you don't need to get into this with your friend but if anybody's sitting here saying oh man i guess the bible's too complicated for me to understand i guess only seminary trained people can read the word i guess i'll just i'll stop trying to read the bible and let you know the pastor tell me what it means that is not what i want you to believe and that's not true my grandfather my my mom's dad i've talked about him before um, had a high school education back when high school went through 11th grade. Uh, worked as a dairy farmer his whole life. Aside from a short stint in the Navy, his entire life was spent in the little unincorporated community out, way out in the country in, La- in Lavaca County where I grew up. And not only did he live his whole life there, he never wanted to go anywhere else. And yet he knew more about the Bible than about nine-tenths of the preachers I've known. Because he read it. Because he studied it. You can too. Don't ever let the devil convince you that you need to know Greek and Hebrew or you need to go away to Bible college. You can understand the Word of God. Just keep at it. All right, that's, that's the sermon for another day. But uh, the second question to deal with. Isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Now that's a question I remember the first time I heard this one. You know, so growing up where I did, Obviously, not everybody that I grew up around was a Christian, but everybody I knew would have identified themselves that way, would have had some church affiliation. Uh, Anybody who didn't wouldn't have been bragging about it. And then I go off to college at a big state school that's very diverse, and I meet kids that were proud of their unbelief. People my age who not only were excited to talk to you about why they were an atheist, but had arguments for why they should be. And so I would hear from time to time, well, you know, the Bible is full of contradictions. And that scared me. And I'll be honest with you, at 18 years old, it scared me because I thought, well, what if they're right? I don't know. I mean, I've grown up in church. I've, I've, I haven't really read the Bible for myself, just gone to church and listened real carefully when my mom read to, it, read to me from it, and, and the preacher and my Sunday school teacher. Uh, but I don't know. What if they're right? Right. And I imagine there are some Christians who feel that way as well. Here's what you need to say. There are passages of the Bible. There are plenty. Where there seem to be contradictions, there are apparent contradictions. But there's always a reasonable, non-contradictory explanation. There are no absolute contradictions in Scripture. So what you can say to them is, just yes, listen, I understand there are parts of the Bible that seem to disagree with other parts of the Bible, but I believe that none of them actually contradict. And I, I've... So, so tell me what specific contradiction are you thinking of, and I'll tell you how I can reconcile it. Ask them to show you where the Bible contradicts itself. And often, they can't. Because the truth is they haven't seen contradiction in scripture. They've just been told that and have accepted it as a point of fact. Yeah, that's something that, remember the, the whole idea of the elephant and the rider? Well, that that's part of their elephant is, you know, people who believe the Bible are idiots because it's full of contradictions. But they've never actually researched that. However, increasingly there are people who will have examples. And the reason why is because there are today, you can thank the internet for this, there are numerous websites, YouTube channels, message boards, uh, manned by atheists, specifically for the purpose of giving atheists arguments to use against Christians. And so you'll see, okay, here's a contradiction in Scripture. Tell, tell this to your Christian friend next time and see what he says. You know, giving them fuel. And so it could very well be that your friend, your relative, when you say to them, well, tell me about some of these contradictions. We'll say, well, how about this? What do you say at that point? At that point, I think, unless you already know, what, know the answer, if you've already uh, dealt with that apparent contradiction yourself, you can answer them yourself, but it could very well be that this is something you've never thought of. Say to them, oh, well, thanks for sharing that with me. Give me a little while to do some research, to think through that, and I'll get back to you. And what you'll find, again, is almost every time, Almost every time the supposed contradictions only seem that way if you want them to be contradictions. Here's an illustration of what I mean. So if you've got a married couple and the man has just decided in his own mind that his wife has been unfaithful to him. I mean, he's just decided. There's no doubt. He's looking for evidence. One day she comes home late from work and he says, where have you been? She says, well, you know, this is my time of the month to go to the to the salon, and I I just, after work, I went and got my hair cut and my color and, you know, styled and everything, and that's why I'm late. Uh Aha, well, I was tracking you on my phone, and I saw you stop at the coffee shop, too. Well, yeah, you know, I, I felt like a latte on my way home. That doesn't prove anything. Yeah, but you didn't say it. You didn't say it. Therefore, you probably met somebody there. You would have to be, you'd have, that, that's... That's an instance of someone thinking the worst and assuming the worst and accepting any, any supposed evidence uh, uh, as confirmation. And that's the case with a lot of so-called contradictions in Scripture. Yeah, you could look at them and say, oh, well, godly, obviously, obviously you know, James says something different than John said, or, or, or Matthew says something different than Mark says, and so they must be, both be lying. Or you could look at it and say, well, Matthew gives a, a, a picture of that event that's different than Mark's, but in the essential details, they're the same. They just are, they're, they're sharing some details that are different, but they don't necessarily contradict each other. Let me give you an example from Scripture. So one of the, one of the difficult things, and some of you may have experienced this when you've read the Bible for yourself, One of the difficult things about the Gospels is all four Gospels have an account of the resurrection of Jesus. But they all differ in some significant ways. And if you've ever, like, Easter Sunday morning, woke up and said, I'm just going to read all four Easter accounts, you might have walked away going, I don't know what to make of this. Because in one account, there's one angel, and another one, there's two, and another one, they don't mention angels at all, and, and in, in one of them, Jesus says, I'll meet you in Galilee, and another one, he shows up in their room that night, and, uh, you know, most of all, there's, uh, Matthew mentions two women who showed up at the tomb, and Mark says there were three, and Luke says there were three, but there were also some more, and John just says Mary Magdalene was there. Well, think about it for a second. Are those accounts different? Yes. Are they contradictory? not necessarily. All four agree that Mary Magdalene was there. All four agree Mary Magdalene saw Jesus. The fact that John doesn't mention the other women doesn't mean they weren't there. Either either John may not have known those women were there, and he's just sharing what he knew. Or for his purposes, it wasn't important to mention Salome and the other Mary and these other women. So they're not contradicting each other so much as giving their version of the events and and what they they saw, what they were aware of, and what is important to what the Holy Spirit told them to report. And if your friends can't accept that, if they still continue to insist, no, 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 I think these accounts contradict each other, you can then go on to say, yes, but do they agree? What do they agree on? What do they all agree on? Well, they all agree that Jesus rose from the dead. So even if you can't convince your friend that the scriptures are inerrant, ask them, do those four eyewitnesses agree that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, you can give them this example. If four different people saw a man shoot another man in the street, and they disagree about how far the man was standing from the guy he shot, and what caliber of of weapon he was using, and how many times he shot but they all agree on who the man was who fired the bullets. Are you going to believe those four eyewitnesses? Yeah, in fact, it's going to help their credibility in the sense that you're going to say, well, obviously they didn't get together and plan this out and decide, okay, let's get our story straight. This is four separate people who all saw one guy, the same guy, shoot this other man. I believed them. And that's the case with the four Gospels. It's not our job to convince people that God's word is inerrant. Do I believe that it's inerrant? Absolutely. But you can convince somebody that the word of God is inerrant and then still be as lost as a goose. That's not the goal. The goal is that they would believe that Jesus rose from the dead after dying for our sins and therefore trust in him for salvation. So, isn't the Bible full of contradictions? No. Ask them to tell you If they're aware of any that you can research, if they're not, okay. If they are, they can be explained. I've just helped you with one of the hardest ones in the scriptures. And then there's what about the quote unquote other gospels? Now this is something that would not have come up before about 25 years ago. But you know what happened, Maybe, maybe less than that, maybe about 20 years ago, you know what happened then? The Da Vinci Code was written. Anybody aware of this book? Uh, Dan Brown, yeah, uh, wrote a series of novels starting with The Da Vinci Code and many others, and they became huge bestsellers, and then they became movies that were huge uh, blockbusters. I've never read them, but I know the plot. So according to The Da Vinci Code, uh, the, well, let me go from, let me, instead of talking about the plot of the books the whole plot of the book is dependent on a a theory of how we got the Gospels. And the theory of how we got the Gospels goes like this. That Jesus, if He was real, there are some who believe He wasn't, but if He was real, He was just a a common peasant teacher, good guy, walking around telling people how to live the right way, uh, accumulated a following because He was a charismatic teacher, but then He was killed. And His followers scattered, and some of them tried to keep his teachings alive, but others, for various reasons, decided, let's, let's make him more than just a teacher. Let's tell the story and, and let's throw in some details about walking on water and raising dead people. Let's even say that after he died, three days later, he rose from the grave. Well, then as the centuries went on, that, that group, of course, grew bigger than the group that was telling it the way it really happened. And then along comes Constantine, the emperor of Rome, and all these politically connected bishops who said, let's get control of this thing. And they decided, let's take that story about Jesus being divine, and let's make that the official version, and let's take these other people who've written down their stories of Jesus just being a simple teacher, and let's just destroy that. Let's make Jesus is divine because that will give us power, and that's how we got the Gospels today. That is the theory. And as the theory goes, unknown to them, those other Gospels, those Gospels written by people who knew Jesus as just a man, they somehow survived, and we still have them today. That part is true. There are alternate Gospels that still exist. One of them, probably best known, is the Gospel of Thomas. What do we say to that? Because you will meet, perhaps, people who believe that, that uh, the Bible you and I read today, especially the Gospels, uh, is the result of a political process 400 years after the actual events. So three things to say to that. Number one, the Gospels were written too early for untrue legends about Jesus to form. So here's, here's how I illustrate that. Raise your hand if you are old enough to remember Ronald Reagan standing outside the Berlin Wall saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. If you remember that? Yeah, okay, most of you. All right, so what if today, someone on your favorite news channel got up there and said, hey, y'all remember that time uh, that Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, and then remember how he turned and he took that little plunger and he pushed it down and it blew up the wall and, and, and all the people in the communist countries were able to get free and everybody would say, no, that's, that's not what happened. That's not the way it went because we're old enough to remember it, because it's recent enough. You can't can't make up a story and and convince anybody of it when there's still a lot of people alive who saw what really happened. The Gospel of Mark, which is probably the first of the four Gospels to be written, was written within 30 years of the actual events. That's even closer to the actual events than we are to Reagan and his presidency, okay? Believe it or not, it's been that long. And so there's no way... By the way, the writings of Paul were even closer. They're within 15... The the first of Paul's writings that talk about resurrection, that talk about the life of Jesus, within 15 years of the actual events. So if those were false, if they were made up, they never would have spread because there there were too many people alive who would have said, this is nonsense. Nobody's going to believe this. Secondly... Oh, and by the way... Those alternate Gospels, the oldest one we have is the Gospel of Thomas. At best, at best, it was written 175 years after the events. That's plenty long enough for people to say, I think I'll come up with my own version and see if I can sell a few books. Very different than something written within the lifetime of people who actually were there. Number two, Yes, there was a series of councils in the 3rd in the and 4th century that, that dealt with, and yes, it was convened, the first one at least, by Constantine, the emperor of Rome, to decide some doctrinal issues. But the idea that the contents of the Bible were subject to a vote uh, in, in, in the books by Dan Brown, it says, and it was very, very close, very, very close on, on whether Jesus was divine or not. That's not true. The first council that was formed in the early church in the, in the 300s was the Council of Nicaea. By the way, if you grew up in certain Christian circles, you grew up saying the Nicene Creed. Maybe some of you remember that from your upbringing. That comes from this council almost 2,000 years ago. What was the Council of Nicaea about? Council of Nicaea was, was convened because there was a man named Arius who was preaching that Jesus was created by God. That he wasn't eternal, but was created, just like us, and he had a, a following. There were people who were listening to him, and Constantine, being the emperor and being a Christian, he said, "We got to do something about this. We got to get all the all the leaders of the church together, and let's just make a statement. Let's decide what we believe about this." And the church got together, and by huge majority, said that is heresy. Jesus was not created. He has, he's been begotten, but not created. He has always been. Um, and then there was a series of other councils to deal with situations like that. There was never a time where they sat down and said, is Jesus divine or not? Okay, there's 37 in favor, 36 against. Okay, it passes. That did not happen. And in fact, the, the contents of the Bible was pretty much known. They didn't bind it together because there weren't bound books back then, but the individual churches knew, okay, this book, this letter is written by Paul. This letter is written by Luke. This letter is written by Mark. This one over here, I don't know who that came from. And besides, it says stuff about Jesus that we know is not true, so don't pay attention to it. This is why we have the books of the Bible we have, was by general consensus of the church in the early centuries. It wasn't close. It wasn't a subject to a vote. It was just it was the way things were. Those alternate Gospels, quote-unquote, were rejected for a reason. The third thing you need to understand. This is going to take a little explaining, but if the Gospels and the other texts of of the New Testament had been made up, they'd read very differently. So here's what I mean by that. If you are making up a story, let's say let's say uh, you I I, ha, I become one of these cult leader types and I accumulate a following of gullible people and I command them to to write a story of my life so that others will worship me too. Well, they'll make me look pretty doggone good, won't I? Won't they? That that I that I have no flaws, that I'm perfect, that I do all these good things. The founders of the faith, the, the twelve apostles. When you read the Gospels, they don't look good at all. They look ignorant. They look cowardly. They look uh, just inept until the Holy Spirit comes. If the, if the early church was making up a, a fictional account of the beginning of our religion, why would the heroes of the faith look so bad? For that matter, why would all the key event, the I'm sorry, the key event, the resurrection of Jesus, be witnessed by a woman instead of a man. Now today, that's not a big deal, but in the ancient world, that was a big deal. You wouldn't have made up that detail unless it actually happened that way. In fact, there's even uh, in the the story in the gospels, it says that when Mary Magdalene went back and and told the apostles, the Lord is alive, I've seen him. You know what their response was? "Ah, Nonsense, just some overly emotional female as usual. So that's the way it was back then, why would the church make that up unless it actually happened that way? It doesn't make them look good. It doesn't make the, make people any more likely to believe it. So why did they? Why would they say it that way unless it actually happened that way? And one more thing, along the same lines, if the early church were making up a story to found a religion, they would not make up the detail about Jesus being crucified. Now this is. To us, that seems not like a big deal because we see crosses all over the place. In the ancient world, a cross was such a humiliating way to die. Not only extremely painful, but extremely humiliating. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. And the way you were put to death was dehumanizing. You know, we can, we can tell stories today about heroes being shot by firing squads or dying in battle or even being hung or beheaded and, and they come off looking heroic, but nobody would have looked at a man on a cross and said, That's heroic. So, why would the church invent such a detail unless it actually happened? Now, I, this could be, this category here could be its own segment and could take a long time. So, if you want to look further into it, I've listed a couple of books in your notes that I recommend, but uh, when people say, What about the other Gospels? you can have confidence that we have nothing to fear from that. And then here's this one Isn't the Bible outdated? And there's a different different ways people say that, and here's what we need to get into. So I quote Tim Keller a lot because uh, he wrote one of the books that helped me with this study, but also he's done decades of ministry in Manhattan, so he deals with a lot of people who think Christianity is ridiculous until they meet him. And he says, over the decades since I've been in Manhattan, the arguments against Scripture have changed. When I first got here, the arguments were usually, the Bible is so unscientific. How can you believe a book that says that a creator made the whole world when the evolution tells us you don't need a creator? It, it all came from, from a simple life form into a higher life form. And, and how can you believe all, all these miracles? We've got modern science today. How can you actually believe in all these things happening? It's clearly legendary. So those were the kinds of issues he was dealing with in the early days of his ministry in Manhattan, but now it's changed. He says now people aren't so much worried about the Bible being unscientific as much as, well, the Bible is an evil book. It, 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 it's pro-slavery, it's culturally, culturally regressive, it's, it's anti-women, it's homophobic. We'll deal with some of these issues on their own later on in future weeks, but I wanna share with you what Tim Keller says to that. Two things. First, he says, you need to understand your, your understanding of the Scripture is incorrect. You think, it, you think the Scriptures teach that slavery is a good thing, but they don't. The truth is the Bible is not pro-slavery. You may have been told that. You make it, Somebody may have cherry-picked some verses and made it look that way, but when you read the Scriptures from end to end, you see that God is the God of freedom and not bondage. Uh, you may think that... Scripture is uh, anti-women. We'll deal with this in greater detail later, but let me just say this. If you've ever read Ephesians 5, not just heard somebody talk about Ephesians 5, if you ever read Ephesians 5, do you realize how pro the liberation of every woman who's ever been married that that verse is? Think about how in the ancient world, I mean, you think it's hard to be a woman today. In the ancient world, they were essentially property of their husbands. And here comes the Apostle Paul saying, you know, husbands, you lay down your wife, your life for your wife. You lay down your wife for her. You be like Jesus, who did everything he could to prepare his bride for the wedding day. So in in other words, she is not there to make your life better. Your job is to help her reach her full potential as a daughter of the king. That's still revolutionary much less 2,000 years ago. So when someone says to you, the Bible is anti-women, you can say, actually, no. Actually, the, even even if, you, even if you take salvation off the table, as silly as that sounds, women have never had a better friend than Jesus Christ in terms of making their lives on earth better. But secondly, he says, just because you disagree with something doesn't mean it's wrong. One thing he points out to them, and, and this is hard for them to accept, because, well, you know, there's, there's very little that's more obnoxious than a young, highly educated person, right? And, and um, when you're young and highly educated, and I've been there, you think that you know everything. Not only do you think you know everything, but people from earlier ages didn't know anything. And I'm sure you were there at one point, too, where you looked back at your great-grandparents and you thought, oh, how could they have lived that way? How could they have been that way? And we can all find fault in our ancestors. Really humbling to think about the fact that your great-grandchildren are going to look back at you and think, how could you have thought that way? About something. And his example that he uses is, okay, if you went in a time machine to a thousand years ago and you found an average non-Christian and you said, let me read you the Bible, and you read them the Bible, they would love the idea of divine judgment. They would say, yeah, that makes perfect sense. If there's a God and He's righteous, yeah, He's going to judge us. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But when you talked about love your enemies, pray for those who hate you, blessed are the peacemakers, they'd say no, that's, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That, that's going to get me killed. Whereas today, it's the opposite. When you tell the truth of Scripture to modern-day non-Christians, they say, love your enemies. Wow, Jesus, he understood some things. We should listen to him. But then when he talks about judgment, oh, that's that's primitive. That's horrible. Well, it just goes to show you we're right and we're wrong. We all have our cultural blind spots. that. that we, just because we disagree with something doesn't make it true. Here's another way to say it. People will often say, hey, you want to be on the right side of history. You know, don't be like our forebears who thought that it was fine to enslave people. Well, you know what the right side of history is? It's the side of history that God's on. No matter what public opinion says, no matter what the trends are, if God is eternal and if God is our judge, then whatever side he's on is the right side of history, ultimately. And, and, and so, if you aren't, what you need to say to them is listen, I understand there are going to be parts of the Bible that bother you. First of all, make sure you really understand what it's saying, because it may not be saying what you think it is. But second of all, even if you study it and you get down to what it's really saying and that still bothers you, join the club. I got things like that too but it doesn't mean the Bible's wrong. Because in any relationship, if that other person isn't allowed to contradict you, then you don't have a relationship. If you've got a spouse or a parent or a friend and you say, you have to agree with me on everything, that's not a relationship. But if on the other hand, they can come to you and say, I don't like what you said. I don't like the way you treated me. I don't like the way you're acting now. That's a real relationship. And that's what the Bible does to us. It speaks to us and says things to us that sometimes we don't like. And that's part, partially proof that it is the Word of God. Now finally, how should we respond to people who reject the Bible's authority? Because let's be honest, it's easy to get annoyed with this. Because it feels like they're calling us fools. In some cases, they are. In some cases, they are unintentionally. In other cases, intentionally. But that's offensive to us for them to impugn the authority of God's Word, for them to say, that's ridiculous, how can you believe that? That can make us angry. And that will not accomplish anything. That kind of anger does not help. So I could have shared the passage from 1 Timothy that we've quoted just about every session. Instead, I'm going to quote 2 Timothy 2, 24-25. And the Lord's servant, he's talking about pastors here, so it applies to everybody, If it applies to me, it applies to you too. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Can you correct them with gentleness? Or are you going to resort to, you made me feel stupid, so I'm going to make you feel stupid. You insulted me, so I'm going to insult you back. Can you focus on persuading them instead of putting them in their place? See, our motive has to be to see their life get changed, to break down at least some of the barriers between them and belief in Christ. I've met many people who changed their minds about Jesus for good. I've never met one person who changed their mind about Jesus for good because a Christian insulted them or because a Christian showed them I'm smarter than you. Now, maybe that person exists out there somewhere, but I haven't met them. Instead, I've met people who changed their minds about Jesus for a number of reasons, but some of them because there was a person who came along and very patiently dealt with their objections in a way that made that lost person think, Maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not as right about this as I thought I was. Maybe there is a rational reason to believe this way, and after all, this person treats me a lot better than I treat them in return. Not just confident and steadfast, which we must be, but also gentle, kind, and loving. That is our challenge. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. It is our food, our bread, our meat, And Lord, we pray that you would help us to love your word, to know your word, to study it and apply it to our lives. Lord, when we doubt its truth, I pray that we would research and study and regain our confidence because the truth is there. And Lord, when others challenge that truth, let us not be afraid or intimidated, but know, Lord, the truth is on our side. I pray that we would respond to them with patience and gentleness, with respect and with love, but Lord, steadfastness and confidence as well. Lord, many of us have specific people that we're praying for, people that we're worried about, and that's why we're here tonight. So we pray that you would help us to be a light to them and to break down those barriers so your Holy Spirit can, can continue to draw them. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.